Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. John, it's just simple. We're opening up. We're doing better, and we're opening up pretty quickly. Ben Lader joining us now. Tower Hudson Research CEO. Ben, fantastic to catch up with you, sir. Let's just start with a simple one. Is the path of least resistance for equities still higher? Uh, the simple answer is yes. I mean, I, I think we're very focused on the sort of bond market and the tantrum and everything we've had, and, and, and that's going to bring valuations down. They're always going to come down from the sort of, you know, 23 times PE. It was not a normal number for the S&P. Uh, it was a reflection of these very depressed earnings. Earnings are now bouncing back, you know, very quickly, and things like the stimulus just give us more and more visibility on that. Mm -hmm. uh, I think we're set up for a big earnings surprise this year. We're going to get 30% earnings growth, not 20 out of the US. We're going to get 40, not 30 out of international. That is a huge insurance policy to somewhat lower valuations and I think sets you up for, you know, another another very rare strong year for US and global equities. Uh, ben Later coming out of HSBC with that wonderful call you made two years ago and then with Tower Hudson and you've announced you're moving on to a wonderful new opportunity. The timeline of that is what is key here. Ben Laidler, no one but you has talked about the robustness of this bull market, a three-year run. How does this end? Well, how do you visualize that the double-digit Ben Laidler stock market ends out there? I mean, ultimately, it gets killed by the Fed, um, it, either prematurely by, by a policy mistake, um, which I don't think we're going to get. I think, uh, you know, Chairman Powell has been very, very clear that rates are, uh, at least at the short end, are staying uh, are staying low for low for longer. But, you know, ultimately, they're going to have to they're going to have to taper. And, and but I, I think that's a discussion for another day I, I you know i don't think that's a discussion for the next sort of six to nine months I, I think that's a little bit of a red herring i think the focus right now is this unfolding growth surprise which um i don't think we have sort of fully baked into numbers and especially from these sort of cyclicals reopeners sort of value stocks where i think that rotation has just begun in the last sort of month or so and after a decade of underperformance so I think to be calling the end of that or the top of that right now is, is dramatically premature. Ben, I want to sit on this idea of a policy error for a little bit, because there are some people who say there would be a policy error if the Fed does not hike rates in the face of persistent 2.5% inflation. Do you think that if we do get that kind of inflation, which Morgan Stanley, frankly, is calling for next year, do you think then that it would be appropriate for the Fed to raise rates, that it would be taken well by the equity markets, or do you think that that would totally change the narrative and would make you uh, reassess your call on equities. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think we're looking at those sort of inflation numbers. I mean, I think we've got a lot baked in already. I mean, inflation expectations, market inflation expectations are already sort of over over 2% sort of medium term. Again, I think we've sort of baked, uh, baked a lot in there. Um, you know, despite you know, this recovery narrative, we're still coming off very depressed levels. There's still a very big output gap there. We still have very depressed sort of segments of the, of the labor market. We had a core inflation number sort of last week, well, well below that sort of 2% number. So, you know, we're going to get a sort of headline spike uh, over the next few months off this sort of very depressed sort of base level. But I think to be calling for those sort of, you know, north of 2% core inflation numbers, which is really going to get the Fed sort of concerned and, and, and looking to sort of unwind 
um, this sort of very easy policy stance. I, I, I think to be having that discussion now, I, I just think I just think it is too early. Well, let's just go through the headlines from the Goldman note from last Friday, Tom. The revision to forecast: eight percent GDP growth in 21, Q4 over Q4. Unemployment to drop to four percent at the end of 21. Three point five percent in 22. Three point two in 2023. But here's the kicker: here, it's about inflation dynamics. And as far as Goldman are concerned, Tom, we expect inflation oh. dynamics to mirror those <clears throat> of the last cycle. So you can have that boom, that reopening for about 12 months, but the the dynamics of the cycle for inflation, at least in the view of Goldman, Tom, doesn't change. Ben Laidler, what's it do to the denominators? I mean, if you get 8% GDP, and I get it, there's a ramp down to wherever we're going. I mean, the fact is corporations adapt, corporations adjust. Do we grossly underestimate their revenue growth and margin expansion in this boom? Yes, I, I think well, I think we're, we're, the danger is, especially for the, the sort of you know, reopeners, value, cyclicals, call them what you will, uh, the amount of operating leverage is, is going to be dramatic because not only is the top line very depressed, and let's not forget how depressed. I mean, you look at, you know, you look, you look at the, 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 the car rental companies, the hotels, the, you, mean, you name it, revenues are still down sort of 70, 80 percent. Um, but we also underestimate the, the operating leverage. All these companies have just taken costs out over the last 12 months. So when you get a bit of revenue growth coming back of a lower, uh, a lower cost base, I think the earnings recovery is going to be dramatic. And then let's not forget the tech names. I mean, these are still secular growth stories that are yeah. growing sort of 15 to 20 percent. So, um, you know, by all means, you know, overweight, focus on those sort of cyclical recovery names. But, you know, I don't think these sort of big tech names are out for the count. And, and, and I would just say you do need to share that view if you're going to own U.S. or global equities, just given how big they are. I mean, equities don't work unless sort of tech at least sort of treads water. So I think we're looking for, a, you know, a cyclicals catch up, not a big rotation out of tech. Ben, we've got to let you go. But before we let you go, congratulations on a tremendous last couple of years covering this equity market after departing HSBC. Just some really brilliant calls in the face of a lot of scepticism. And Ben, we look forward to seeing how you do in the new venture. Ben Lader there, Tower Hudson Research. David Rubenstein is with Carlyle Group. His value to us, his peer-to-peer -peer conversations have been wonderful. David, do you perceive an end to the pandemic? Not overnight, not anytime soon. I do think that uh, if the vaccination program in the United States is as successful as the president uh, hopes it will be, it is likely by the fall we can return to some type of normality. But I don't think it's going to happen overnight, no. What are business people doing? I mean, you've got great contacts, not only your daily work with Carlisle, but your earned credibility over the decades. And this is the key question I have, David. Do business people ramp up for a 7 to 8% economy and hope and pray, or do they settle and manage for a 3 or 4% growth rate? Which is it? I think the uh, business community is assuming we'll have a pretty good growth rate because the stimulus package is obviously going to stimulate the economy. It's a very, very large package for sure. I'd be very surprised if growth is at three or 4% given this stimulus. On the other hand, uh, we should recognize that the country has two different business communities. You have the business community of private equity or finance or technology, which is doing quite well, we might do better than four or five, six or 7%. But then you have the, the underclass the blue collar workers, the people who have been laid off, people that, that don't have enough food and so forth, those people are not gonna be growing at that kind of rate. So we do have two different economies we're really dealing with. 
For your company that you uh, are a leader at, how important is it for you to get your employees vaccinated right now? I think it's very important to have uh, people be vaccinated. I clearly, uh, I, I think when you have a vaccination process, you're going to have a healthier economy and you're going to have a healthier population. You can't force people to get vaccinated. And I've been disappointed that so many people in the country, relatively speaking, are saying they don't want to be vaccinated. When I say so many, maybe 20, 25 percent of the population is not yet convinced it needs to be vaccinated. And I think uh, we really can't get complete herd humanity, humanity herd immunity unless we get a very large percentage uh, uh, vaccinated. So I, I'm disappointed that some people don't want to be vaccinated. I, I understand why, but I think it's, it's probably the wrong decision. Well, and this really raises a conundrum for a lot of executives where they want their employees to have the vaccine. They don't know how to encourage it. They can't force them, as you say. What are the best incentives and how important is it for you to get people back to the office, back uh, traveling again and, and leading more normal pre-COVID types of lives? I think employers are struggling with this, but to some extent, I think some employers will say, if you're not vaccinated, don't come into the office. And therefore, some people will continue to work at home or there will be special places in, in offices for people that are not vaccinated, but they'll have to be tested when they go in and so forth every day about whether they have the virus. That's not an optimal situation. Clearly, it'd be much better for all employers if their most bulk of their employees are, are willing to be vaccinated. For those who, for variety of reasons don't want to be vaccinated, they're going to have to be special ways to handle them. But uh, I don't think you can force people to be vaccinated against their, their wishes. Yeah, this definitely has been an issue, Tom. I mean, think about a special place to put people uh, at a time when there is concern well, about the ongoing spread of a virus that is mutating. Yeah, that's an interesting idea. And David, this goes back to your public service with President Carter a few years back. How close are we, David Rubenstein, to the common sense idea of a vaccine passport? Well, I think it's possible, um, but I, I, I don't think that you really are likely to have uh, um people being forced to take vaccines. And, and I just think there's going to be too much uh, resistance to forcing people to be yeah. vaccinated. I just don't think that will work. There are many people, and I would say in the minority community, for example, many African-Americans are have the view that very often they, uh, they've been uh, used inappropriately for uh, vaccines that maybe weren't as safe as or other uh, tests that weren't as safe. Uh, and therefore, there is some resistance in the, in the minority community, African-American community. There's some resistance among white males, many of whom, uh, for political or other reasons, just think that the government shouldn't be telling them what to do. So you see that uh, white male uh, voters uh, who are Republican, some of them are are fairly high, fairly determined not to be vaccinated. And you, you can't force them to be vaccinated. David, what's the pulse of mergers and acquisitions right now, transactions and combinations, not only traditional, but also the effervescence we see in the market with SPACs and such? Well, for people who are in the M&A world and people in the private equity world and finance world, it's almost as if there wasn't a, a pandemic because deals are going on. Just people aren't meeting face to face by and large. And so it hasn't had a, a deleterious effect it, uh, it really on this part of the, of the economy. And I, the SPACs are something that no one could have predicted. They clearly are very effervescent is the word you maybe have used. Um, at some point, maybe some of them won't work out, but I don't think SPACs are going away. I don't think that SPACs are here just as a temporary measure because of the, of the uh, pandemic. SPACs do serve a purpose. Some, some cases they do get wildly inflated in terms of the valuations uh, when you have companies with no, no revenue getting very high, very high valuations. On the other hand, 
Uh, they do serve a purpose, and I don't think they're going away. They're going to be a part, permanent part of our financial structure, I think. David, always great to get you on the program. Come back soon, won't you? Stay close. David Rubenstein there, the Carlyle Group founder. With Invesco on fixed income and particularly loans, Noel Corum joins us. And what's wonderful about Noel is she started out in the trenches of the trading desk uh, as well. And that's really cool. It's a very rare that you get academics with her you know, ability in the classroom that come out of the trenches of trading. What does the loan market look like right now? Invesco's up to their eyeballs in loans. What's the character of the loan market? Tom, before we get started, I have to tell you that my toddler so perfectly gave me this this morning, and I just thought it was too perfect not to show you for St. Patty's Day. So. Yeah, but it's a St. Patty's Day, which means we have to have a Guinness on tap. Could you get the Guinness? And for people who are listening on, on radio, 15. she held up a big sparkly bow tie but from her toddler green with sequins, know, just like Tom. one of those at home. He just chooses not to wear it in the yes. office. Yes. Carry okay. on, Noel. Yes. So, no, how about those loans? <laughs> yeah, so let me give you our backdrop of kind of growth. Growth, we're just below Goldman, I would say. We're expecting around 7% growth for the year. Inflation, we expect to be messy. And that's ultimately going to keep the Fed on the sidelines. We do expect as inflation is messy, we could see some more rates volatility. And um, we could see as a result, loans um loans demand. And you've already seen that. You've seen the retail investors step in in a significant way. Um, I would, you know, caveat that the retail investor also steps out, you know, when they start to get worried pretty quickly. So just, of course, um, you know, don't put, we never suggest putting all your eggs in one basket, diversify where you can, especially with levels where they are, you know, in terms of valuations, diversify across uh, bond asset classes. Noel, this is really important. Typically, when we talk about fixed income, we don't talk about retail participation. What is that incremental retail participation in leveraged loans like? What has that looked like in the last month or so? It's really stepped up because, right, a lot of investors are worried about that that rates volatility. We haven't seen it, though. We haven't seen the volatility carry through into the other asset classes, though. And that's kind of, uh, you know, the main reason that we're still bullish on credit. I wouldn't say we're over our, our skis in risks here, but we do think that growth is going to be supported for fundamentals this year. And that is ultimately why, you know, we would suggest um, investing in in bonds, we think the growth is going to support um, companies throughout the year, and that's really what's going to um, you know be be the. The, the story in 2021. Noel, I want to pick up on one of your lines, and it's without context. You can give us that in just a moment. But it's something I've read a million times in fixed income, and I've read it over the last month. I've read it six months ago, nine months ago, and over the last several years too. Valuations are rich, thus investors are not getting paid for this risk. Is that just the story in fixed income? Is that the new normal, that valuations will always be rich and investors will not be getting compensated for risk because we live in a new world now? So it is a new world. We are, you know, at very rich levels. Um, and we do think a lot of this year will be about clipping the coupon. But because of the volatility that we are likely to see in stocks or rates, it does make sense to diversify your portfolio. So, of course, we're, we're actually seeing a lot of crossover investors and a lot of crossover demand come into high yield EM to pick up the yield there and diversify their portfolios there and then, um, you know, comp- compensate themselves. We still think there's some value specifically within the services sectors um, that you can also pick up. And there's still a little bit of value in leveraged loans relative to high yield and, of course, IG. 
Taking a step back, there's a larger question going forward about whether the Fed has put a floor under the default rate. In other words, is the Fed put basically going to prevent the default rate among corporate debt from getting too high because they will sweep in and they will end up buying that debt and reducing borrowing costs enough to let these companies continue to survive? This year, it's really about growth, right? And, you know, we expect defaults to come down. We ex- in IG, it's really going to, we expect lower supply. It's going to be a lot about deleveraging. So a lot of companies are making the right moves that we would expect in a high growth year. We would, you know, expect most of the growth to come in the next couple quarters as the stimulus is spent, of course. And then, you know, in Q4, we would start to look for any kind of creeping back of COVID concerns. Um, but ultimately, we expect to end the year at potential in terms of growth. So if credit risk isn't the main risk here, are you delving also into the riskiest of corporate debt, the triple C rated stuff, even on the uh, fixed side, even on the bond side? A little bit. I'd say because valuations are where they are, that in and if you see continued volatility, and you're not being compensated as much as you you know you'd like it as an invest as an investor with rich valuations it doesn't make sense of course to go you know over your skis on risk and take a bunch of risk in your portfolio but it does make sense to reach incrementally into these higher riskier higher risk areas because we do expect growth to support these companies and allow them to improve their fundamentals on the year Noel, good to see you, as always, and love the bow tie. Noel, come on there. Good luck. Can I just say, John, you started started out the program talking about a Sesame Street reference. I did, yeah. We ended up, first of all, do they watch Sesame Street in the UK? Did you grow up watching it? Yes, we watch Sesame Street in the UK. Yeah, sure. Okay, and we got that, and then we got the bow tie. So did Tottenham this weekend, obviously. (laughs) Carry on. With us now, a gentleman of profile and courage, Michael Mayo, joins us. Wells Fargo at Securities on Banking. Michael, you're very good at buying straw hats in winter. The banks who were in winter any number of months ago, the banks have had a great move. Can you still own the banks here? Uh, absolutely, Tom. I mean, you still haven't made up uh, the underperformance versus the general market uh, since the start of um, 2019. And so the catch-up trade still has room to go for the banks. Uh, and today, in fact, uh, we increased our estimates on J.P. Morgan uh, to the high on the street. Um, so we think that uh, earnings will be a lot better than expected uh, in this specific case for J.P. Morgan and, and, and probably others. And what's so important here, Michael Mayo, is you know, and Paul Sweeney knows this too, corporations adapt to the news that they are given, the strategy they're given out one year, three years, five years. How does James Diamond adapt to 8% GDP? Well, well, first I'd say what's good for J.P. Morgan's customers, what's good for the banking industry's customers is good for the banks. That's mutually beneficial. But uh, Tom, you know, I'll say here, uh, happy birthday, Albert Einstein. That was yesterday. And guess which executive quotes Albert Einstein the most? Mr. Diamond. Exactly. And he often says, quote, everything should be made as simple as possible, but no simpler. Uh, So that's an Einstein quote that he uses to reduce the complexity of running a bank down to simple concepts. And one of those very simple concepts is in a downturn, 
invest, invest, invest like you would any other time. So, Tom, your question is what happens with this accelerating GDP growth? Well, J.P. Morgan is a few steps ahead at a time when some other banks are dusting off some expansion plans or trying to get everything straight. They've already been investing. In fact, they've increased their investment dollars by two and a half times over the last five years. And they're increasing it by one fourth over the last year. It raised a lot of eyebrows. It's like, why are you spending all this extra money? I mean, there were, there were a lot of concern about that. And now you're saying, okay, hey, it makes sense to expand branches to all the lower 48 states. It makes sense to expand bankers in the U.S. and outside. They're investing more in tech. So they're coming. This investing is really a, a sweet spot of the economy. So they've been very smart. And, and let's face it, a little bit lucky, too. Who thought we'd be this far along with the vaccines? I mean, President Biden right. talking about Independence Day uh, from COVID, July 4th. And then the stimulus, $1.9 trillion uh, last week. So the environment's looking up uh, just at the time when uh, J.P. Morgan is at peak investment spending. So this is similar. It's kind of history repeating itself yep. with J.P. Morgan coming out of the global financial mm-hmm. crisis. J.P. Morgan came through that much stronger. And through the pandemic, we think J.P. Morgan will come through this much stronger once again. All right. So, Mike, it, there's this grand reopening trading and Goldman Sachs is raising their GDP forecast and they're uh, you know, taking down their unemployment numbers in the fourth quarter. Really, really bullish there. Do do I want to own some of the more consumer facing big banks like a Bank of America uh, or do I want in a city or do I want to own some of the more investment banking centric names such as a J.P. Morgan, a Goldman, a Morgan Stanley? Well, you have a recovery play. But then you have a longer-term play where the largest banks are going to trend toward the greatest efficiency in history. The pandemic has accelerated years of customer behavior in a matter of months. So the role of digital banking uh, is revolutionizing the way that banking is done. So yeah. you know, our top pick is, is Bank of America. We had already increased estimates on them. Uh, Citigroup with the new CEO – followed by J.P. Morgan. So Goliath is winning in banking, right. both both for the recovery trade, but also yeah. for this long-term you know, tech revolution right. theme as it relates to banking. Mike Mayo, we have an important Global Wall Street essay out today on Goldman Sachs, on Mr. Solomon, and some of the uproar of people leaving Goldman Sachs. You've got an overweight on Goldman Sachs, I believe, is Mr. Solomon getting it done there, or to the tone of the article, is he spending too much time jetting around on the Gulf Stream? Well, let him jet around on the Gulf Stream as much as he wants, because all the schmoozing, all the lunches and dinners and everything that Goldman does to create warmth, they're monetizing that warmth into to market share. So at a time when the wallet's growing, uh, their share of the wallet increased. And as you know, he used to lead uh, the the banking side of things. So this is uh, a period of stronger for longer capital markets. Goldman's on the top of its game. Um, They have been poached. So let's face it, Goldman Sachs is like the, the, the Harvard of banks. And so you work at Goldman, you have a pedigree, you get hired away. So you had the head of their... Uh, consumer initiative get hired away by Walmart. Uh, then you had uh, the head of asset man, mm-hmm. co-head of asset management get hired away. So you're you're absolutely right. They're getting poached, but they have a, yeah. a deep bench. They have a deep bench, and you know some turn is okay. They 
the the partnership ranks got very heavy. They promoted a lot of people, and David right. Solomon came in and said, "We don't need this many partners." So some churn uh, is to okay. be expected. We're out of time, Michael Mayo. Thank you so much with Wells Fargo. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.